This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross, who's off this week. Our guest today, Tim Miller, is a former Republican political operative whose new best-selling book takes a hard look at the Republican Party's embrace of Donald Trump and his own role in events that took the party down that road. Miller never supported Trump and actively worked against him after his own candidate in 2016, Jeb Bush, fell out of the race. But Miller writes that, on reflection, his own work as a hatchet man for the Republican National Committee and other candidates helped to create the climate that enabled Trump's rise. His book offers a revealing look at how the conservative media world has evolved in some disturbing ways, and he takes a harshly critical look at Republicans who privately regard Trump as unhinged and dangerous, but still found reasons to support him politically or work in his administration. That section of the book is based on interviews he conducted with many Republicans, including friends and former colleagues. Tim Miller is currently an on-air analyst for MSNBC and a writer-at-large for The Bulwark, a website launched in 2018 which features news and opinion from a center-right perspective. His new book is titled Why We Did It, A Travelogue from the Republican Road to Hell. Tim Miller, welcome to Fresh Air. You know, a lot of Republicans uh, who've denounced Donald Trump eventually came around to embrace him. Um, the title of your book is Why We Did It. Who's the we in that sentence? <laughs> Dave, well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, the we is the Republican political class, basically, uh, which includes donors, conservative media, candidates, political candidates, and uh, and political operatives, of which I was one. And and I think that we includes basically everyone who was involved in Republican campaigns during the time in which uh, I came of age politically. Uh, I focused uh, the book on essentially 2007, uh, the the pre McCain Palin campaign era uh, through uh, the present day. Uh, I'm sure that somebody writing a history book could could push this back even further, uh, but. For me, I felt like everyone within the Republican ecosystem, uh, starting around the time of Sarah Palin, you know, got very comfortable with uh, uh, playing this game of politics where we enabled people that were that were increasingly radical, where we uh, riled up uh, the Republican base and and fed them an, a, a daily dose of grievance uh, about things that that maybe didn't really impact their lives as much as uh, we made it seem like it it did. And I think that all of this set the stage for Trump's rise. And, and with the benefit of hindsight, I look back on it and see it pretty clearly that it shouldn't have been surprising that somebody like Trump would have been able to take over a, a party and a, uh, a political system that was you know, the, the way that, that we had, um, you know, that we'd been playing it. You know, I kind of want to say early in this interview, I this is me answering a question rather than asking it, but I think a lot <laughs> okay. of our, our listeners will wonder, well, why are you having this guy on who, you know, debased American political discourse and weakened democracy, and now he's making money on your book and you're helping him? And, you know, after you you never supported Trump, and even after 2016, you, you had a, a PR firm while you were in transition that helped. You did some work for Scott Pruitt, or your firm did some work for Scott Pruitt, yep. who was Trump's uh, EPA director and for Facebook. There's a lot of, lot there. And I just want to say that to me, I mean, whether you have sufficiently, you know, atoned for past misdeeds is between you and your conscience. And people can look at the record and form their own opinions. I found when I read this book, I learned things I didn't know about how the system worked and especially about how the Republican media world evolved. And that's why I want to get you on here and share this story with us. Um, 
you worked mostly for moderate Republicans. You worked for John McCain in 2008, Jeb Bush in 2016, and for a time in the 2012 cycle for John Huntsman. People may not remember him. He was a Republican governor of Utah, but uh, he served actually as President Obama's ambassador to China, and he was a guy that you were in sync with. But a lot of your job involved taking down other moderates who would have been rivals to your candidates. Um, this was pretty rough stuff at times, wasn't it? Indeed. And, uh, you know, for listeners who are concerned about me, you can get the book at the library. It's okay. That's not going to hurt my feelings, you know, or borrow it from a friend. I, tr- I understand people's reservations. I, I tried to be as honest as possible in this book and, and honest about myself, about my own failings. Um, and, and I felt like that gave me, hopefully, the credibility to be honest about uh, the corrupt system that I was part of and, and honest about really some of the deranged and debased choices that some of my former colleagues and friends made in the future. And, and so to answer this question, is, uh, part of that being honest is, is looking back at my own actions as, as a Republican hitman. And I really was. Uh, this was what I specialized in, was opposition research uh, and working the media uh, to deliver a negative message about our opponents. In uh, the, the 2012 campaign, where, we, where I was working for John Huntsman, we went after Mitch Daniels. We saw Mitch Daniels as a threat uh, he had some, uh, uh, yeah, I think, kind of a interesting, strange personal life in the way that that his marriage had went. He was um, a, a governor and- of Indiana. Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah, he was governor of yeah. Indiana uh, at the time. Uh, you know, he had been kind of divorced and then reconnected with his wife. It had left some hard feelings in its wake. And um, and so the, some of the people who were upset with him had kind of reached out to to uh, intermediaries to, to say, hey, I'm willing to talk to the press. And so I kind of briefed some members of the media about this just so they, so they knew that this might be a scandal that would come up during his campaign. He ends up deciding not to run because of that. I look back on things like that. I look back on things like me dealing with Steve Bannon and the Breitbarts of the world to have them attack the other more mainstream candidates You know, on my candidate's behalf. That was something that I did regularly. And, and I think... I mean, this was all technically within the rules of of politics, right? I wasn't doing anything illegal, but but you know, stepping back from everything, uh, I was actually kind of harming the candidates that that I thought were better suited to run, and and in a lot of ways helping the more extreme candidates. Uh, I was participating with people that were spreading very toxic, at times racist material on their website. And I was, you know, kind of uh, uh, favor trading with them. Right. You know, after the 2012 presidential cycle, you formed a thing called America Rising, which was, you describe it as a chop shop that would mercilessly investigate and then eviscerate Democratic candidates and causes. Uh, You you know, you would hire trackers, you know, low-paid people who would follow Democrats around with video cameras hoping to catch a gaffe or, or something that would embarrass them, and then you'd, you'd, you'd use this material against them. I wanted to hear a little more about what was appealing about this, um, how the yeah. game worked, what was psychologically reinforcing about doing stuff, which hurt people who you, know, you probably would have had a lot, of, a, a lot in common with. 
Yeah, it's a strange part about our two-party system, right? I, I had much more in common with, say, a conservative Democrat than like a Tea Party Republican in my politics, right? But the Republicans were on my team, right? And, and this is the way that, that D.C. is structured. Uh, the Democrats had created a group like this already called American Bridge. And, and so I saw kind of this entrepreneurial opportunity to work with two other people and create a Republican version that could compete with that. And, and what that entailed was you know, basically always focusing the research, the opposition research and the tracking on, on Democrats, even, like you said, at times when the candidate was more appealing. I, my, in the very first race, I give it as an example, that we, that we had a client, uh, the race was between Terry McAuliffe, kind of a centrist Democrat, and, and Ken Cuccinelli, a far-right, bigoted, anti-gay, anti-immigrant Republican. I, had I been a voter in Virginia in that election, I would have preferred McAuliffe. But, but because of the nature of this group I had created, you know, I was actually attacking McAuliffe on behalf of Cuccinelli. I, and I, and you know, I look back at that and I say, okay, well, if I was able to do that, that explains quite a bit about how a lot of my colleagues ended up justifying going along with Donald Trump, even though they found him, you know, repugnant. You know, it's interesting that I think, you know, I've covered politics for a long time in Pennsylvania. And, you know, years ago, people, only insiders knew the names of political consultants. But with the growth of cable TV and social media, you know, you guys are a little more public, so you can kind of get to be Washington famous. And if you're somebody in your 20s coming up, that's, that's pretty heady stuff, isn't it? <laughs> there is this minor level of fame that comes now with being a political strategist. If, if you're on TV, you can get Twitter famous. People stop you on the street sometimes and say, hey, they really like your material. Um, interns that are coming into Washington get a little starstruck. And a lot of people, Washington is a town filled with people who were very um, high-achieving, uh, uh, you know, uh, young college, high school students, but who probably weren't very cool, probably were not very popular. They get to Washington. It's a town that is also run by young people. You know, most offices have maybe one gray beard or two gray beards, but then, you know, these really pretty important positions, spokesperson, things like that, are run by people in their mid-20s. And all of a sudden, you know, you, ha you are, have access to the congressman or access to the senator. Um, you know, people want to follow your thoughts on social media. You're getting invited to these parties with, with celebrities, the weekend of the correspondence dinner. All of a sudden, you know, people like Sean Spicer, who I write about, are getting asked for selfies all the time on the street by Trump supporters. Uh, you know, they're getting recognized. Their parents' friends see them and, and uh, you know, they hear from mom that, you know, Joni from the club said that their, their boy's doing great. Yeah, all of that stuff is really, really appealing, especially to people who kind of didn't get that as when they were growing up. And so it's, so really it's this kind of banal kind of desire to be seen, to be, to be recognized um, for affirmation that, that drove a lot of people to do things that are, are pretty evil. You know, we were talking about the work of political consultants. And, you know, in my work as a political reporter, it was interesting because I would talk to political consultants a lot and I would realize how like other people, other professionals, they appreciate someone on the other side even who knows the craft. And, mm -hmm. you know, they wouldn't get personal about it. They would just say, all right, yeah, that was a tough shot against my guy or my candidate. And good for you, but I'm going to give you the best and give it back to you. you. You write in the book how there's this mentality among this world. And some people get it and don't get it. And it, one, one case where 
somebody came up and really got in your grill at a party about what you were doing. Share that with us. Yeah, when I was first at the Republican campaign school, the, the person that was teaching the class said the nicest thing you can say about a, about a political operative is that they get it. And what they, what they get it means is uh, they want to compete as hard as possible on behalf of their candidate. They get that the point of the game is to win. Um, uh, complaining that, oh, if we put out this crazy email or text message or ad that's not quite true and saying that, oh, I don't know if we should do that. What might the, This might inflame voters a little bit or this isn't quite right. Like That's a sign in a meeting that you don't get it, right? That you are you know, uh, too concerned about the details and not concerned enough about winning. And, and, and that is a really debased culture. And, and I, I give an example about this is uh, in 20... Uh, I guess it was 2012 campaign. Uh, uh, Huntsman had lost. I went on to work for, uh, for Mitt Romney. And I'm at a bar uh, for a friend's uh, birthday party. They're a Democrat. Uh, I don't think I've mentioned it yet, but I'm a gay man. I have a daughter now. And uh, someone that works for Obama comes up to me at the bar and says, I just don't get it. How could you work for somebody that does not want to support gay marriage? How do you sleep at night? And I, you know, he's kind of a little aggressive about it. And I, I looked at him and I was like, this is crazy. What are you talking about? This is crazy. Obama used to not be for gay marriage like two minutes ago. And now you're asking me how I can sleep at night. I like, screw you. And uh, I, I relayed the story to several friends at the bar, including Democrats. And, and the consensus was that that guy was the jerk. And I look back at this now 10 years later and I say, wait a minute, no. That guy was right. I, I didn't have anybody in my life saying that to me, and I had more. I should have. More people should have said, Tim, why are you working against the most important thing in your life? But to say that would be against the rules of the game. It would be a sign that you didn't get it. And I, I just thought that was a very telling uh, anecdote about, about how d- corruptible D.C. culture is. Right. You know, you brought this up. I was going to bring it up anyway. I mean, the fact that you were gay and closeted for a long time while you were a Republican operative. And you describe a moment in 2006 where John McCain, who you were working for, suggested in an interview with Chris Matthews that, um, you know, gay marriage could be okay if we're we're talking about a private ceremony, not something legally recognized. (laughs) And your reaction was, you can't say that. Yeah, I mean, this is horrible. You're asking me just all these things that make me feel horrible, but that's okay. That's the point of the the book and expressing this. Um, I, I remember watching this and thinking... You might imagine someone watching that and saying, oh, cool, I'm going to go work for this guy that, that wants to allow me to have this kind of imaginary future, totally fabulous gay garden party that I'm not even ready to admit that I want because at the time I'm still in the closet. Um, but instead, my reaction was totally warped by the fact that I knew I wanted John McCain to win. I, I wanted to work in the White House. And, and in 2006, being for gay marriage, was not a tenable position in a Republican primary. And so I find myself getting upset at him. Like, why are you screwing this up? Um, and and I, I just look back on that mindset and think, wow, I mean, how, how warped can you be? You talked about when you were working at the, at, at the Republican National Committee and for America Rising, and these, these pitches would go out for, you know, for money. Um, you know, I'm used to the fact that you know, almost any political message is distorted in some way. I mean, the, 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 it's not journalism, but but I'm wondering, in this period, was the stuff simply factually wrong? I mean, did, did it matter if it was true? 
Um, of course things were factually wrong. In fundraising mail? Have, have you read? Do, do any of your <laughs> listeners get texts or emails from fundraising? Well, that's fundraising? now. We're talking about like 2012. Yeah, yeah uh, no, trust me. There was less oversight because it was in the mail. So I was at the RNC, I would have to approve it. And, and I, I would make edits that were much stronger, I guess, with my predecessor. I didn't realize this because things were either not true or just unfair, bad faith. And I'd take out Hussein and Barack Hussein Obama, uh, you know, because obviously, you know, stoking racist sentiment against him. And then the fundraising people would get mad at me. And so we had to have this summit where we discussed whether or not they were going to take my edits. And the question that the RNC's chief of staff had was, well, to me as the communications person was, well, do you think we'll get bad press over this? And I said, well, no, probably not. It's in the mail. I, you know, we, maybe by bad luck, some reporter will come across one of them. And he said, okay, well, then what are, we, then what are you doing? What's the point of editing this? Let's just move forward. And, and that was the mindset. At no point during that meeting did anybody say, should we be doing this? Right? Like, is it worth the extra five bucks to use the word Hussein in Barack's middle name? Do we need to do this? And I think that now, you know, if you just fast forward it, you see the same thing. I, I'm still on all the R RNC lists, so I get the emails and the text. And it's nonsense about the election, stop the steal, the fraud. And, you know, the 23-year-olds who are writing these texts don't really believe that the election was stolen. But that they are now in an even you know, exaggerated version of that same culture where speaking up and saying, I don't know if we should send this text, is a sign you don't get it. It's a sign that gets you in trouble. You know, th this book notably does not have a last chapter which says how we get out <laughs> of this, uh, what to do. Um, that said, what do we do? <laughs> yeah, well, here's why. Um, just, uh, just before we did this interview, Dave, um, my old organization we've been talking about, America Rising, they fired their chairman, uh, because he had the gall to help Liz Cheney's campaign. I mean, this is how sick and cultish the right has gotten. An organization that I started as a moderate Republican can't even welcome somebody who works for Liz Cheney to work for them uh, because they are so concerned about the backlash you know, within their own team. And so if that is where we are, right, if Liz Cheney is not even welcome in Republican circles, right, if we cannot you know, at all break bread across party lines because we've decided that the other side is evil. Uh, you know, what recommendation could I offer in the last chapter of this book that would be up to that challenge? I mean, the, the, this, our political discourse has been contaminated, and I was one of the ones contaminating it for, for generations now. It's going to take generations to get out of it. And I think starting it, I think that we can make some changes to the electoral system. I've noticed that uh, the only Republicans who voted to impeach Trump that survived live in states that have these jungle primaries. They don't have partisan primaries. It's where Democrats and Republicans are all together in the same pot. That seems like a useful change. And, and I think we need some responsible donors and, and wealthy individuals to fund more, particularly center-right media outlets that, that are responsible. Uh, but, but, you know, those are all some rather small ball changes to some very large challenges. And so when my editor said, give me a final chapter that, that tells us, you know, that, that lifts people up a little bit, I just, I didn't feel like I had one to, to write that met the challenge, and, and I wanted to end the book in reality. And, and, and where reality is, is that we are still very divided, that this road has been a long time coming, and, uh, and that it's not, you know, we're, we're not on a path to, to reconciling anytime soon. Let's take another break here. Let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with Tim Miller, a former Republican communications staffer. His new book is Why We Did It, 
a travel log from the Republican road to hell. He'll be back to talk more after this short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. We're speaking with Tim Miller, a former Republican communications operative who's written a new book about the Republican Party's embrace of Donald Trump and his own role in creating the climate that enabled Trump's rise. He also writes about his interviews with Republicans who find Trump's conduct disturbing or even dangerous, but who found reasons to support him or work in his administration. Miller's book is Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican road to hell. Uh, I think one of the most interesting parts of the book is sort of looking into how conservative media worked and evolved over the time that you were interacting with it. You were a press guy, so you dealt with them a lot. Um, When you were part of America Rising, this Republican sort of attack force that would would, uh, investigate Democrats and people around a video, their every comment and all that, you got to know Steve Bannon uh, and cultivated contacts in the alt-right media world. I mean, first of all, at at the time, what did you think of their agenda, their messages? I hated it. They were uh, the ones who were out to topple, you know, the more moderate Republicans that I liked. Um, I found it uh, racist at worst, or certainly race baiting um, is maybe the most sensitive thing you could say about it. And um, and no, I, I would not have supported any of their candidates. And like I said before, I was much more aligned with like a centrist Democrat than I would have been with Steve Bannon. But Steve Bannon was on the Republican team, right? And there were ways for me to use him. And you know, they, despite the fact that they pretend to hate the establishment, they would often host us for parties at what's called the Breitbart Embassy on uh, Capitol Hill, which is the Breitbart offices. Bannon said to have lived there for a time. And so I would go to those to cultivate that relationship, uh, to be able to use those websites to push information that was harmful to uh, my political opponents, which were sometimes Republicans, other times Democrats. You also say that America Rising, this organization that you founded to to research and attack Democrats, would host parties for uh, people at Breitbart and other far-right you know, publications, bloggers. Tell us a little bit about how you made that relationship work for you. What did you trade? What did you get from it? Sure. Well, we would give them information um, about candidates, things that would get them clicks. Uh, we had built a relationship with the Drudge Report as well, and so we could get their articles on the Drudge Report, and which you know would uh, uh, skyrocket their traffic uh, and make them want to deal with us more. And in exchange, our clients, the candidates that we worked on behalf, would see that we were getting results for them, right, by getting information out, um, sometimes positive about them, but mostly negative. It's like one of your trackers might find something, some em- embarrassing thing a Democrat would say. You would get to decide who you would leak that to. That would help them get an exclusive. Um, so favors build up over time. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, there was the famous one was we had a tracker that found a, a Democratic candidate in Iowa uh, at a fundraiser uh, that he was making fun of farmers um, and uh, attacking uh, Charles Grassley and saying that a farmer shouldn't, you know, be in charge of these important Senate committees, uh, which is obviously not a popular thing to say in Iowa. And so, you know, we'd take that little clip and and send it out there. That was, you know, one of the more legitimate pieces of information we spread. But uh, you know, there was little things like that uh, that would that would build up over time and give us this kind of cachet. Uh, with the right-wing media outlets. The thing that I worry about is now the people that were that were consuming this information, right? And that's the evolution over time, right? Back in the 90s, you know, they might listen to Rush, but they'd see, you know, Tom Brokaw on at night. But now, like, we'd create an entire ecosystem from talk radio to Rush 
to all these conservative media outlets where we are constantly needing to feed that you know, with negative information about Democrats. So they were desperate for things that would make Democrats look bad, that would make their uh, viewers, readers want to come to the site. We would provide that to them. Uh, and in the meantime, I think, exacerbate the grievance that the readers were feeling. Right. And at times, if an article appeared about your moderate candidate in Breitbart, it, you would have actually written it, right? Basically, yeah. And or, you know, they would email questions and I would send them back. Um, at times, though, or not Breitbart, I just, uh, there are plenty of things terrible with Breitbart, but I just want to be honest about who I'm, who I'm uh, uh, spreading the tea about. But uh, there were other right wing websites that I'd send them an idea for a tip and they'd say, uh, could you just write it for me? Right. And I would, I would literally write the blog post. And then, you know, they might tinker with it a little bit, but they would put it, put it up, on, up on their site. Um, this was much more common than people realized. And again, internally, when you think about this from a career standpoint as a PR person, it, it gave me a sense of, like, you know, people were impressed with that, right? Like, your bosses would be impressed, clients would be impressed. They'd say, oh, man, you could just ghostwrite me the perfect article, you know, on this website that that Republican primary readers read, that's valuable. So uh, I was incentivized to do that, even though a lot of times I was working with people that were kind of unsavory, where the other material on the website, maybe not what I had sent, but the other material on the website was was outrageous. Right. And, and there were times that you would have an interview with your candidate, which would really be a... A, an email exchange with you speaking in the candidate's voice, right? But so the right wing website. Yeah, Breitbart did a banner headline one time. Breitbart speaks with Jeb Bush! Exclamation point. And it was you know the reporter, quote unquote, sent me three emails, and I just replied to them. I don't even remember if I showed them to Jeb or not because I replied with just our kind of approved boilerplate language that we use for anything, and they would put it up. But they would see that as this huge win. Like, look, even Jeb Bush is dealing with Breitbart. We're giving them a little bit more credibility, you know? And then I would see that as a win because the Breitbart readers would finally see something nice about Jeb Bush for the first time in ever. And, and you know, in retrospect, that it's clear that that was, you know, just one small part of uh, kind of mainstreaming uh, what, what, you know, this, this radical nationalist anti-immigrant ideology into the party. Right. So you kind of felt like you were taking advantage of them to give your moderate candidate yeah. some exposure to voters that, that wouldn't otherwise know it. In a way, they were taking advantage of you to gain respectability, right? Yes. And and by the and to drag other uh, the more moderate Republican candidates over to their ideology. Right? Like they only did that on issues you know, that they wanted to advance, you know, anti-immigrant issues, right? They'd say, if you do an interview with us where you say you want to build the wall or whatever, you know, we'll give you glowing coverage. It slowly is co-opting us, moving the party to the right. They won in this. I received a phone call after the book came out from one of the Breitbart reporters who I had very harsh words for. I think I called him a, a grown-up Ralph Wiggum that you wouldn't even believe was real if, if, a, if a liberal, you know, kind of Hollywood movie had written about him, it would have seen, it would seem too cliche. Uh, and uh, you know, for for them, for him to be a real person, and so uh, you would think that he would be mad at me, but no, he called and said, "You are the one who gets it." He's like these Republican establishment guys that work for Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy still think they own us, but that is not true. We own them. Like we can, we slowly but surely are co-opting them and dragging them to the right, and and you know, they are. We are the puppet masters. They are the puppets, and and. 
and I, I think that's right. Uh, it's very clearly true. And, and yet somehow these Republicans in the establishment still are deluding themselves that they're in control, despite the fact that Donald Trump has completely taken over the party and that their voters are demanding that they you know, increasingly endorse these far-right or conspiratorial uh, views. Mm. We need to take another break here. Let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with Tim Miller. He is a former Republican communications staffer. His new book is Why We Did It. We'll continue our conversation after this break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Smartwool. Don't sweat the incline. From the trailhead to the summit, enjoy every single step with Smartwool's powerfully durable hike socks. Made with naturally performing merino wool for the perfect fit and cloud-like comfort. Enjoy 15% off your first purchase when you sign up for Smartwool's mailing list. What are you waiting for? Get out there with Smartwool socks and take every hike to new heights. This is Fresh Air, and we're speaking with Tim Miller. He's a former Republican communications operative who's written a book about the Republican Party's embrace of Donald Trump and his own role in creating the climate that enabled Trump's rise. It's called Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican Road to Hell. You know, you, you, you're right, and I'll just quote this because I think it's put very well. You know, putting everything together, you realize we had created a full-service outrage generation machine right at the moment that the right-wing media ecosystem had become a surround sound of grievance peddling that instructed the audience on how to love hating the right people. Um, everything was outrage. Everything was grievance, and over time— that has an effect on real voters, right? I, I guess the other question is, did you have something to offer those voters? I mean, you're right. You know, these are folks who, in a lot of cases, lived in you know towns hollowed out by the you know the deindustrialization yeah. of the United States. They had real problems. Were you offering real things or just grievance because it worked? Let's just be honest. We weren't even thinking about the real problems of these white working class voters. And this is my biggest self-criticism that I think overlaps with MAGA. And, and Donald Trump is a phony and a charlatan, but he had this right, you know, is that the Republican establishment was fake, okay? Like, we didn't actually care about what the voters cared about. And, and so the fact that somebody could come in and actually offer them a message that, that resonated with their lives and their, and their grievances and their resentments uh, shouldn't have been surprising. You know, I, I write about the 2012 autopsy. And, and you know, I, I think we are well-intentioned. You know, the, this is the Republican National Committee autopsy that I worked on. Yeah, after the defeat of 2012, you assembled great minds, yours among, among them, to figure out how the Republican <laughs> Party can change and start winning, right? Yeah, go ahead. Exactly. And we thought we need to, to appeal to a more diverse America. Right. Uh, this was uh, it was well intentioned. Right. We should, you know, moderate on immigration and criminal justice reform to appeal to to voters of color. You know, we should soften the language around gay marriage, maybe even abortion to appeal to women in the suburbs and younger voters. And, and this was the recommendations, um, which which flattered our biases. That was the kind of party I wish I could have worked for. But but what we didn't even think about, what we didn't even talk about. I went back and read all of the emails. What wasn't even suggested was actually maybe we should challenge some of the other shibboleths of the Republican Party. Maybe we should respond to the legitimate grievances of people, who, working class people who are upset about the forever wars, uh, people whose communities have been hollowed out uh, by uh, globalization. 
maybe we should be more responsive to their needs. Those that was the reason Mitt Romney lost Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, not you know because of the self deportation. But we didn't even think about that and talk about that because that went against what kind of the donor class wanted, what our own instincts and biases were. And so I, I think that there are legitimate grievances that these communities have that we didn't even try to address. And I think if you look back on this, that is, I think, the main mistake of, of the establishment part of the party and letting this kind of fake phony take over where he pretended to want to address their grievances um, in a way that was much more authentic, which is why they think that he's a truth teller, much more authentic than, than, the, than the ways in which we tried to address their grievances. And so, you know, some of, the, some of those grievances are illegitimate, race-based or cultural, but I, I think they have very legitimate concerns about, how they're, about things that are happening in their lives that we didn't even try to deal with. Instead, we just said, oh, be mad about the Ground Zero mosque. Be mad that there's a caravan coming across the border, you know, rather than, than addressing what was happening in their lives. You have an interesting section about how conservative media have evolved over the last 10 years. And it's instructive to look at an online publication, which I honestly don't remember, founded around 2011 called the Independent Journal Review. Tell us about this site, what it hoped to do. Basically, they were trying to create a BuzzFeed for the right, right? Kind of these, a site that mixed a little bit of the news with memes and, you know, kind of joyful, puckish uh, kind of material, a little bit of pop culture, you know, talking about conservative pop culture, um, not just, you know, the more liberal parts of Hollywood, and just put it all together in one site with material that was easy to share on Facebook, easy to share on social media. Um, and, and it, I thought it was a good idea at the time. I, the people that were running it were younger, 20-something Republicans. They had my sensibility, more center-right in the party, not these culturally uh, you know, far-right ideologues. And they started this website, and it, it, it skyrocketed. I, for a while, <laughs> I'm not surprised that you don't recognize it because this was really just in this conservative ecosystem. But for a while, it had more traffic than all of the conservative sites you've ever heard of, right? The National Review. I mean, it was crushing these sites. It ended up having more than Breitbart for a while because the material was so viral on Facebook. And I interviewed the founders for the book. And they said that at the beginning, we thought of our materials kind of like the FDA guidelines, you know, where, you know, we'd give people uh, a little bit of red meat and maybe a little bit of the hard stuff for dessert, but we'd also give them some vegetables and some fruits, right? And so uh, hopefully some real news and some, you know, kind of harmless, funny material could live in harmony with this, you know, kind of race-baiting red meat um, uh, kind of conservative news uh, that, that you see on, on Breitbart. So, so that was the idea, a balanced diet and some real journalism in there, right? People that would check facts and do real journalism. Yeah. How did it work out? Well, shouldn't be surprising. The readers didn't want the veggies, Dave. They wanted the heroin. They wanted the dessert. They wanted the red meat. And so slowly over time, you know, this, that's what the site started to give them. Then Donald Trump comes and takes over the party, and they really didn't want veggies anymore, right? Like the, the only writers at the site who got any clicks were the ones who were just writing effusively praise for the articles about Donald Trump and, and you know, really na- nasty memes and, you know, short social media posts about, about the left. 
left. And, and so eventually, you know, the credible part of the site crumbles. And the only thing that is left is, you know, what we all see now is, is now widespread in the conservative media because they were copied, um, which is, uh, you know, the really conspiratorial, um, kind of cruel uh, uh, material that you see on like libs of TikTok these days or the Daily Caller or any, any other conservative media site. We're speaking with Tim Miller. He's a former Republican communications staffer. His new book is Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican Road to Hell. We'll continue our conversation after this break. This is Fresh Air. You know, the second half of your book is based on interviews that you did with people who worked in the Trump administration or supported him, in a lot of cases, people that you knew. And you wanted to figure out what, you know, why did they do this? People who, by and large, didn't really believe in Donald Trump. And a lot of the reasons that you give are things that we would expect. I mean, power, ambition, access to... Um, to the game, fame, all that stuff. But one of the things you said that surprised you in terms of feeding people's willingness to support Trump was hostility and hatred of the left. What surprised you here? I started doing these interviews with, with only people who I knew knew better, right? Friends of mine who had told me they didn't like Trump at some point over history. And, and so I thought they were much more interesting than, you know, we know that Stephen Miller hates the left, right? Uh, you know that there are all these, that there's a handful of sociopaths, a handful of bigots, a handful of idiots that work for Donald Trump. I didn't find any of those people interesting. This, this book is about the people who knew better but went along anyway. And so that's why I was surprised when repeatedly, kind of otherwise gentle people, people that I knew to be, you know, volunteers in their community and, and you know, people who I, who I did not think of as jerks, right, would, would get a couple beers in them and then they would start ranting to me about how mad they are at us never-Trumpers and the Lincoln Project and the Bulwark and the media and how the media is out to get them and how woke culture is out to get them and how their wife's friend calls, called him a racist at a dinner party and this was this was uh, repetitive in many of the in the many of the conversations that were on background. And then my friend Caroline, um, who who I end the book with, said this to me on the record. Uh, I asked her, you know, at the end, what was it she liked about Trump? And she literally said, "I actually think it's all negative. I'm just so sick of the people with their Priuses and their coexist stickers, drinking their coffee culottas and wagging their finger at me." And I was like, "This is preposterous." Like, I, I don't, you know, as you mentioned, plastic straw or paper straws. I was like, I don't like paper straws <laughs> either, but voting for Donald Trump over it? Um, and, but but what, what I realized was in this D.C. culture that I'm now separate from, having been cast out of the party, that is, at dinner parties, that is what they do to comfort themselves, right? They talk about all the things that have made them mad about the left, and, and, and they have this deep-seated anger and hatred towards the left and towards Obama and towards the media that I never really had. I was playing this game the whole time, which, which has its own problems, as we've been discussing, but they were, they were developing a real-life anger um, that, that allowed them to justify working for somebody they knew was dangerous. You, you know, one... Um, rationalization for going to work for Donald Trump that you are pretty dismissive of is the argument of a lot of people who took jobs in the Trump administration that, look, it's the government. Somebody needs to run it competently. We need grownups in the room, somebody who can, you know, prevent some of the worst stuff from happening. And, you know, people look at the January 6th committee hearings and you see, you know, some of these lawyers like, you know, um, Eric Hirschman and even Pat Cipollone who – in critical moments when Trump wanted to seize voting machines and appoint, um, you know, Jeffrey Clark, attorney general, put their 
feet down. Um, what about that argument? I mean, it would sound like in some cases people there made a difference. Yeah, we could do a whole two hours about this. And if people want to hear this debate back and forth, I have a whole chapter with Alyssa Farah, who was the communications director uh, for Trump in the end, who kind of took that job reluctantly um, and, and now has gone full anti-Trump um, based on his behavior after the election. And, and we debate this question uh, back and forth. Uh, but in short, my view is that anybody who really thought they went in to quote unquote save the country there was this group called the committee to save america you know which was you know john kelly at all who said they were you know we need responsible people in here we don't like this guy but we need good people none of the members of the quote unquote committee to save america tried to save america when when there were only two choices on the ballot joe biden and and donald trump uh, none of them endorsed Joe Biden. I worked for a group called Republican Voters Against Trump where we recruited people to make videos um, opposing Donald Trump. And we recruited a couple from the Trump administration. You might remember Olivia Troy, Elizabeth Newman, and, and we made ads with them. But these were mid-level um, operatives, not to degrade them. I thought they showed great courage. But none of the top-level people did. And so my point is, if you really, if that was really your, if that was really your reason to go in, that you cared about this country so much that we needed good public servants, then then you would have spoken truth about what you saw before the election when we had a chance. You know, we had a very close election last, not not as close as the Trumpers want to make you think, but we had a close election, and we needed every voice possible to speak out in order to try to stop him. And I think the, the, what was revealing is that all these people who said that they went in you know, because they were going to be the ones that, that, that protected the country, um, you know, that was actually just, they were flattering themselves, right? Like that was the story that they told themselves to justify going in. But in the end, you know, they really were attracted to some of these more base reasons for going in, you know, the access to power, ambition, et cetera. You know, um, I agree that the discussion with Alyssa Farah uh, Griffin is is interesting. Uh, and in the book, she gives you a list of things that she said she did inside, which made a difference. Directly talked the president out of firing Mark Esper twice, convinced him not to use racist birther attack on Kamala Harris when uh, others pushed for it, uh, pushed him not to replace Dr. Burks with Scott Atlas on the COVID task force. Um, what about that? I mean, uh, you know, I, I, the, yeah, her, she said she uh, saved stars and stripes, even yeah, <laughs> somehow right, she convinced him to send the tweet that, that I, I, wouldn't shut down Stars and Stripes magazine. And what she says, uh, sorry uh, okay. to interrupt you. What she says to him is, you know, like your argument that that you should that the responsible people should not have gone in is essentially a let it burn argument. That you know, if that's what people voted for, um, then let let's get the worst government that Donald Trump can give us, and people will see what it's really made of and we'll come to a reckoning sooner. Is she right? Yeah, that is kind of my argument. There's something to be said for that, is there not? And we're still dealing with Donald Trump in 2022, right? Might, had, had, had people like Alyssa uh, not been protecting him from his worst impulses, might there have been 17 Republicans who have had the courage to vote to impeach him the second time so we would have been done with them? You know, might the, might the election in 2020 not have been quite as close because voters would have seen what they, um, you know, what they voted in a little more clearly? I don't, I don't know. These are counterfactuals. I don't think it's a clear question. 
but I, I just I, I do reject this notion that it's up to some mid-level staffer to be the one to save the country from from itself. Um, I, I think that there are responsible career people who should who go, should have gone in and did their jobs. I think in national security, obviously, I give H.R. McMaster people keeping Trump from pushing the button a pass. But but I, I think that this justification was, like I said, flattering to a lot of people in Washington who had a lot of other reasons for going in. And, I, and um, you know, I just, I don't know that Saving Stars and Stripes magazine was worth risking, you know, Donald Trump getting a second term over. I, really quick on Alyssa, I just do want to say that, that if there's any hope in this story, it's her. And, and we, we go very deep and it gets very emotional on why she decided to at the end, say no. Finally speak out and say, I cannot do this any longer and stick with it, which he is, which he is committed to doing, different than Bill Barr. And, and it was that she started telling herself a different story. She started saying, okay, well, as much as I thought I could save the country, clearly I can't anymore, given his behavior after the election. And now I start thinking, what are my kids going to think if I am complicit in this, in this riot at the Capitol? What are, what are my... What, is my, what are my in-laws going to think about me? And I think that's interesting. Like she does offer a way out for, for those people who, who had these rationalizations that became no longer operative after January 6th. And, and I think that in a lot of ways, she's similar to a lot of people who are acting a lot worse than her right now. And, and I'm hoping that her story can, can maybe be a little bit of an off-ramp for certain folks as, as we unfortunately look ahead to maybe having to deal with this monster one more time. Well, Tim Miller, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Dave. Tim Miller is a former Republican communications staffer who's now an analyst for MSNBC and a writer at large for TheBulwark.com. His new book is Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican road to hell. On tomorrow's show, we talk with comedian Mo Ammer. He's a Palestinian whose family fled the first Gulf War, so he grew up in Houston from age nine. He speaks Arabic, Spanish, and the kind of English that puts Texans at ease. He's done two Netflix comedy specials, and he stars in a new Netflix series based on his life called Mo. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. We had additional engineering help from Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yacundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. <laughs>